Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have The Conjuring, starring Vera Farmiga, Patrick Wilson, Ron Livingston, and Lily Taylor. Written by Chad and Carrie Hayes and directed by James Wan. Welcome back to Rice Mile Films. It's a new day. It's time for a new film review cast, but a cast that, Matt, we've been wanting to do for a really long time. Let's just call this one the Conjuring Universe cast. <laughs> Off the top of your head, uh-huh. what's been mentioned more on this podcast? Well, Anything having to do with The Conjuring or Paul Verhoeven? Oh, I don't know. It's probably close. It probably is. Yeah. <laughs> And even maybe not necessarily the conjuring itself, but maybe the room in the conjuring yeah. with all the knickknacks. But I'm sure we're gonna we're gonna talk about that on today's episode. Certainly. But a lot to talk about. Um, and then I'll, I'm gonna read off on this episode too. I actually found the chronological listing of the, the order of the how these films take place uh, based on years. So okay. it's all over the place. It's crazy. Uh, but we're opening up a new bottle today. This is the Old Elk Small Batch Sour Mash Reserve. So a sour mash, you know, uh, as we do on our show, we will sour mash a film to kind of take what's existing and then make it into a more palatable film. They kind of do the same thing with whiskey. They make one batch of whiskey and then all that uh, 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 material, the ingredients gets run through the batch again. And you actually get an, an even, I think, sometimes better tasting whiskey. I love sour mashes anytime I can pick them out and spot them. Yeah. And this one's a, a limited demand, only 5,000 release. So... Let's give it a whirl. Good choice. Here's to you. Cheers. I kind of like a whiff of sunflower seeds when I tasted that, but that was pretty good. Like we said, sweet, and then kind of get the spicy at the end. You know what it reminds me of at the front end? That whiff is honeysuckle-like to me. Oh, there you go. Um, And then that mid-palate's a little bit complex. I'm not sure exactly what that is, but I like you said, the pepper on the back end, Mm -hmm. definitely. That's a real interesting taste. Yeah, it's got a, a lot of different complexities going on there, but we'll figure out some more of them as we get along with this thing. But let's get started with our flight question. Okay, so Matt and I just stepped into the threshold of hell. <laughs> it's really spooky in here. But the music's going to be something interesting to talk about. The guy that composed the music for these films, Joseph Bishara, he actually plays a... What's the name of the witch in this thing? Um, Bethesda Be- Beelzebub. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, it's Beth the something. Bathsheba. Bathsheba. He plays her. Is that right? The composer, yeah. He's, uh, he's one of James Wan's buddies, and he did the music for the Insidious... And he says, hey, do you want to play the thing in, in this thing, but also do the music? He was like, sure. And so, yeah, that's when the, he, when she's in full makeup, that's him. Mm. Pretty cool, huh? That's why that thing looks so terrifying. <laughs> right? Go ahead and hit us with the flight this week. This is a very decade-appropriate film. Okay. Feels like the 70s, because it is. Mm-hmm. So I was kicking around the idea of genres as they are related to different decades. So I gave us each a genre. And then the question follows with what decade do you see 
it being performed the best in. I believe you were given action. Yes. And because it's me, of course, I took romance. <laughs> I did. So you want me to go first or would you like to go first? Uh, you go first. So this is just the argument for the decade that presents the best storytelling capabilities. And for that, you probably know where I'm going with this. Mm. It's the 60s. Uh, unapologetic and brave are two things that come to mind. And if you go from Harold and Maude to Stepford Wives to, I know it's on the cusp, but Midnight Cowboy is, you get it. Bromancy. Yeah. Well, they deal, it is a bromance for sure. Mm -hmm. They all deal with an important element of any romance and that's the intimacy issue. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, we can throw a last picture show in there oh, absolutely. and all of the broken relationships. And then what ends up happening is that is such a base component of us as humans, right? Love mm-hmm. and compassion, mm-hmm. companionship and all those things. When the sixties get their hands on it and it's presented in that counterculture way, we could even roll out the graduate here if you like. Mm-hmm. Frankly, even psycho, you could make the case has romance elements in it. And certainly vertigo does. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can just keep going and mm-hmm. rattling them off and off and off. Marnie. <laughs> of sorts <laughs> the first sexual thriller that was ever really mainstreamly done right uh-huh. it's raw mm-hmm. and weird but mostly it's honest over the course of my time on this planet i've come to one irredeemable truth or irrefutable truth i guess is more appropriate mm-hmm. the relationship you're in only has to matter to you and the person you're in it with yeah and the 60s are really good at taking that and presenting it like these two people get it and nobody else, even if you want to do Badlands, Sissy Spacek Absolute, and Martin, um, yeah. Martin Sheen. Good one. We can go on and on and on and on. I think that's a good decade too, just because at least from the Hollywood perspective, uh, it allows it to not be so cutesy all the mm-hmm. time. It allows it to be, you said the word raw. I think that's perfect. Uh, allows it to be a little more unhinged, a little more animalistic at times and really push the boundaries in, in some of those films. So I don't know if relationships are neat. No, they're messy oh, and raw yeah. and emotional <laughs> and uncomfortable. Yeah. And the sixties did a great job of mm-hmm. taking that and putting it in an entertaining way on the screen for us. And so that's not to say they weren't done in other decades. Well, arguably, <laughs> but I don't see it done better than they were in the 1960s. Excellent. Great choice. Thanks, man. Uh, Action. Real quick, uh, what kind of spurred this on was, you know, horror, obviously, and we said, you know, 70s, and the 70s are, were a great genre, but the other one you said was comedy. Mm-hmm. Just real quick guess, uh, if you had to just pick a decade for, you know, comedy, kind of, what would you pick for comedy? Aughts to 10, 2000. Oh, I was going to pick 10. the same same exact decade, yeah. and I don't know if it's... That whole kind of Judd Apatow crew, and there's a lot of just different interesting things going on with comedy at that time. Yeah. Oh, we were in the same, same wavelength. Excellent. Yeah. So mine's action. Mm-hmm. I can only pick the 1980s, right? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> but let me tell you why. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think the 80s, both uh, from a decade's perspective, both economics and then, you know, if you especially look at like yuppie culture and that whole craziness. It was the decade of excess. I mean, the films kind of, whether it's Wall Street or American Psycho, they show how greedy people could be. Um, and I think that reflects, you know, violence on on screen as well. And mm-hmm. we tapped into male action stars, whether that was Schwarzenegger, Stallone, 
Bruce Willis, Chuck Norris, John Claude Van Damme, like all these guys like sort of emerged. And these films like blew it up on like anything that had come before. Like I love Charles Bronson and James Coburn and all those guys, but they can't really hold a candle to these guys, what they were doing in the eighties. And they're sometimes one dimensional, but they're fun. They're exciting. And there's some really good gems in there. Lethal weapon, die hard first blood. We did first blood on the Patreon, uh, Conan, Total Recall, RoboCop is a huge one I would put in there, a uh, more satirical kind of take on action and violence. But slight honorable mention to 2010 to 2020, films like Mad Max Fury Road, John Wick, Inception, The Raid franchise, really kind of pushing the envelope in what action is able to do with more budget, more uh, special effects. But there's just something about those guys in the 80s. You know what I mean? Rambo, I <laughs> Riggs and Murtaugh, McClane. Mm-hmm. Like, you just, when I say action, you kind of just think those guys all, all right away. Yeah, it's spot on. That's, mm-hmm. I think, uh, very appropriate. And I think for all of the conversations you and I have had about how much I don't like the 80s, that genre definitely works at mm-hmm. the time. But look at who you just rattled off. Yeah. Mel Gibson. Mm-hmm. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone. We didn't even get into any of the Bond stuff, which there's some pretty heavy action stuff going on at that time. That's Dalton and Brosnan, right? Or is that just Dalton? No, it's a little bit of more in Dalton. It's more in Dalton, yeah. Yeah. And would you put any stock into, like, the superhero stuff, like Batman and maybe the Superman stuff? Yeah. science fiction action. Well, I mean, buildings are coming down and there's explosions. There's a fine line between science fiction and... If you even want to include the Western genre here, mm-hmm. that's pretty heavy action too. Like you get your boy Kurt Russell and Tombstone at mm-hmm. that time. How, so, how could I forget Aliens? I mean... I've heard of that. <laughs> have you? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I have one theory on this. Yeah. <clears throat> at a time when Hollywood wasn't so protective of what culture thought of it regarding gender roles in film, I think that decade worked because it just let it be what it was. Yeah, and I think also that not having to rely on IPs, intellectual properties, Mm -hmm. they still had to put in some effort and some work into making interesting characters Mm -hmm. like John Rambo and McClane and uh, Alex Murphy, RoboCop. I mean, they didn't just walk into that. They had to work at that, and they were all mostly created on the screen, which is, I think, even more impressive. So spec mm-hmm. It's a big deal, too, because if it doesn't have a pre-existing mm-hmm. property, then you're probably not ever getting it across the finish line, greenlit yep. to the light of day. Mm-hmm. If that wasn't your cup of tea, then so be it. And the movie said there's plenty of other things to see. We've got a lot of rot family dramas that'll tide you over. Good God. You could decade. go watch Ordinary People. <laughs> or if that doesn't work, we have On Golden Pond or Term, any of the... Terms of Endearment. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Kramer versus Kramer, right? Yep. We can just keep going. Yeah. I didn't even mention Raiders of the Lost Ark. Or was... anything with Kevin Costner. Yeah. <laughs> Look at who we've just rattled off. <laughs> yeah. No so said. it's pretty impressive. It's, you know, I don't think we've seen it much since. Other than, like I said, 2010, maybe. I mean, there's some good gems in there, but... Give me those 80s action films all day. We didn't even kind of go into just kind of the the B stuff that would come out with like canon films, action films, Dolph Lundgren. Like they would just be, have you ever seen Showdown in Little Tokyo? Yeah. Him and Brandon Lee? Like that movie's not good, but like that's a fun movie. Sure. Uh, excellent. Um, okay, so Horde, we said 70s. Hot take though. I bet I could make an argument for every decade really mattering for Horde, whether that was the 30s. For the 40s and the Val Luton stuff, the science fiction horror in the 50s, uh, 
we'll skip the 90s. We had a hard time in the 90s, but man, once we get into the 2000s and the 2010s, we're kind of back with it. You know what I mean? I and that's where this film is, 2013. I mean, it's right in the threshold of a lot of great indie horror films. This is studio, but this is It Follows, You're Next, uh, The Witch, uh, Hereditary's on the Horizon. I mean, this is such a great time for horror when this film comes out. And although this is a studio piece, it doesn't feel like it. Mm. It's not burdened with, we have these huge stars that we have to show off. Not that Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga were unknown entities. Of course they weren't. I know, yeah, but they're not selling the tickets. <laughs> what sells the tickets is what we're about to get into here in a few minutes, and that's the Warrens. So let's do it. Excellent. Uh, cheers. Cheers. I love your decades. I, mean, cheers I, too. I, I could just talk about that kind of stuff all day. and not even, not even have a film to talk about it with, but let's get to the film and our review breakdown of The Conjuring. Yes. Where's the doll now? Someplace safe. Yep. So, what are you guys? I mean, what do people call you? Uh, well, we've been called demonologists. It's one name for us. Ghost hunters, paranormal researchers. Kooks. <laughs> Wackos. But we prefer to be known simply as Ed and Lorraine Warren. Mwah. Titles over black about the Warrens. Yes. All right, let's start at the beginning where the where the film uh, starts us off, which is something that this uh, franchise uh, just can't seem to get over, which is uh, a little doll by the name of Annabelle. Mm. And I, always, I almost kind of forgot that this is where the film started. And it's almost a deterrent to moments in the film that this is the opening of the film. So we kind of pick up with the, these kind of group of kids that stumbled across the doll and they like let someone's spirit into it or something. And they're like, yo, you shouldn't have done that. And then they have like an encounter with the doll. So the Warrens take it to their treasure room. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Can I go ahead? No, go ahead. I was, I was letting you just tell the story. Well, because I'm going to go into Sour Mash right now. <laughs> go. Yeah. All right. Okay. So. As I kind of prefaced uh, with you when we finished our last episode, mm -hmm. I think I've, I've only saw this movie the once in the theater. I really liked it, and I haven't seen it since. So it's been eight years since I've seen this movie. 2013. Yeah, huh? right? Wow. Yeah. Uh, so a lot, of, a lot of this was, it all kind of came back to me, but I was like, man, they do spend a good chunk of time setting up this doll, the beginning of the film, only for it to kind of almost hijack act three of this film. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't you have rather have seen an opening because we get into a really interesting conundrum later on where uh, Ed Warren, Patrick Wilson is really hesitant to allow uh, Lorraine to come to these houses because he's afraid of what gets taken out of her. And they specifically mention this possession, which is the footage they're showing in that auditorium at this lecture circuit. Mm -hmm. Shouldn't that have been the opening? Shouldn't we have just like been there with that and see this exorcism and see them in their element that way we could have seen them tie back to this moment because we just get it in real quick flashes and save the doll for the, the final end teaser sequence because we end up doing a lot of back and forth at the end. And I kind of thought, I was like, that's well, because they introduced it at the beginning and I know what they're doing. They're really trying to push, put that cart before the horse. Um, and rightly so they know what they've walked into uh, in terms of idea. But I, I just, I was like, man, maybe this would have been a bit of a better opening I think what you're alluding to is the strange structure of sequencing that you're going to get to with the films and what order these should go in. Mm -hmm. I'm with you. Let's pick them up in action and see the Warrens in their 
in their world doing their thing. Some sort of they're doing like some sort of exorcism with like a possessed guy in that thing. That possession goes so south for Lorraine that she has to lock herself in a room for mm-hmm. two weeks. Yep. That might be a bit of an obstacle insofar as maybe we're now not watching Lorraine for two weeks, but here's what it does. I'm agreeing with your sour mash. Mm-hmm. What it does is we got to get mom out of the room because there's other people mm-hmm. that need her and our help. Yep. And that puts your wife in harm's way as Ed is sort of the lead dog with, I think, where this is going per the strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, she's the talent of the two, no question about it, but yeah. he's the strategy piece of this. So she's just finished this exorcism. She's locked away, quarantined for two weeks, trying to get herself right. And she's out immediately to go help this family. So your sour mash here is so spot on because the Warren's true power comes in the faith and the support that they offer each other. Mm-hmm. If that's in play initially. Yeah, right away. And compromised, then I don't disagree with it. It doesn't derail the movie for me at all, but I, I see where you're coming from. Yeah. Um, showing that in a grainy videotape in some lecture circuit is what the Warrens made a living doing. <laughs> Their well, snake oil salesman bit, but per <laughs> it's, it's, so, it's, inter- always, it's always snake oil, isn't it? It always is. Yeah. This means it's not very good. Mm-hmm. Annabelle works. Mm -hmm. Annabelle is such a large presence in this film. She might be, well, okay, here's a perfect example. Yeah. We struggled to remember Bathsheba's name and she's the linchpin of all things evil in this. All evil things, yeah. But we never forgot Annabelle. Yeah. And I feel like that's a a mistake. I mean, introducing it so early, but you said it perfectly. If they're lecturing in the lecture circuit and we just were in that scene already and then we pull back and then it's like, oh, it's the projector screen and we're, they're talking about it. Because mm-hmm. I guess I got a little confused as the film went on because Ed keeps going up to Lorraine like, I don't want, you're not ready. I can't. And I'm like. They're all around it, right? And I'm like, just what, do it. But I'm like, what are they talking about? I'm like, what incident are they referring to? I would have liked to have seen it. And had I known that it would, they alluded to it. And it's not until I think an hour and I have the clip of it. Now we're in four minutes where he's talking with Ron Livingston outside and he's like, it took a lot from her that time. I was like, that's the opening of the movie. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, no, you're right. It was just kind of, it just all juxtaposed because we had to set up the doll, first of all, and the almighty evil. Because it was almost like they were trying to set up the next movie in the end of this movie. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. And that's crazy because then that movie takes place before this one in the 60s. Like, so that they didn't even really need to do that. Conjuring 2 precedes this one. No, Annabelle precedes this film. Yes. Uh, But let's kind of just kind of get into it. Let's talk about Ed and Lorraine Warren and the real people that they were. I like how they use snake oil salesmen because you got to take all of this with a grain of salt or believe in kind of whatever you believe. Um, When we did Ghost Story, I told... uh, a ghosty story of my own. So I do believe in that, that type of thing. Um, and wait till we do, I'm just waiting for us to do some sort of alien movie because I have a weird alien ish encounter. I said ish and get abducted one night and experimented on, but I had like a weird encounter at a Wendy's <laughs> with it. I think an alien, but I got to say, real? yeah, it's a crazy story. Yeah. It happened on Halloween night. It, it scared the shit out of me, but what we got to do an alien movie and I'll bring that one out. Oh my gosh. Yeah. All right. I'm going to find an alien movie immediately. <laughs> We've just changed the Patreon to something different <laughs> to aliens <laughs> fire in the sky. There you go. Um, so believe in whatever you want to believe, but you know, Ed and Lorraine Warren made a pretty decent living. I, they set up like the new England society of paranormal investigators and, and 
they investigated thousands of cases. I actually uh, bought a book this week, a, a digital book of this person that interviewed them of just about different things. And I kind of just want to get into, into that and kind of get that perspective because the other side of the fence goes, it's a bunch of horse shit. <laughs> well, and there's a lot of evidence that it's a bunch of horse shit. Mm-hmm. Look, they took a crack at anything having to do with any paranormal function, including the Amityville horror. Well, that's a whole coax thing in and of itself. So, right. So you have to market yourself. Mm hmm. And strategically, I guess I'm putting on my Ed Warren hat here. Mm -hmm. If it's 1973 and there is no ability to do what happens in horror films now, which is the lack of technology and the ability to communicate plays better in the 70s. It's also part of my argument for that decade. Mm -hmm. Cell phones ruined horror films. I had a moment while I was watching this where I was like, Look how great this is. Like they're mm-hmm. just in this house listening to music. No one's on their phone. Like it was such a simpler time. <laughs> right. Put the mamas and the papas on and let's go. Mm-hmm. If all you have is some EMP detecting device that might pick up a pulse of noise, which essentially is just a glorified speaker system. Yeah. Ed and Lorraine Warren are able to monetize something that's irrefutable because Everyone that says there's no such thing as ghosts says that, myself included, Mm -hmm. because crossing over the threshold to maybe there is, is truly terrifying. So it's easier to stay on this side of denial Mm -hmm. (laughs) and just say, well, I never saw it. And the truth is for everyone that has that story, and I saw the glowing footprints of blah, blah, my aunt, Donna, as whatever, right? Everybody, everybody has a family member yeah. that has that story. And it's why we like these movies. Yeah. That's why they're made. Yeah. Ed and Lorraine Warren took that idea yeah. and monetized it because I'm, I'm going to be careful. I say this, but for any worried crackpot that is certain that they're being haunted when it's just the dog's chain rattling in the wind or whatever it is, that person's dying to have their fortune read. Yeah. So I have to, let me give you one more. Don't forget to say, I'm going to say one more thing. Yeah. When I was very, very, very young in my relationship that with my wife, mm-hmm. we decided one day it would be fun to go to a fortune teller. Ed and Lorraine Warren master the same thing that the fortune teller does. If I walk in to a fortune teller with a female immediately they're reading the scene. Yeah. And if we walk in holding hands, she's probably going, it was just she, she's probably going to extrapolate that maybe they're together. So I sit down and she looks at me and goes through her little mystic trance bit. The person you're with, maybe the person that you're going to spend the rest of your life with, <laughs> or maybe they're not like talk about hedging your bets. Yeah. So that same Again, snake oil salesman bit, the con piece of this plays out in a safe space because if the con is revealed, then there's no such thing as ghosts and you feel okay about it. See, I'm right. There's no such thing as ghosts. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good, it's all a sales tactic almost. It is. It's a self, and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy for me to want them to be wrong. But Mm -hmm. if I prove them wrong once, the Warrens are full of shit. Yeah. 
I need to keep proving them wrong over and over and over and over again. And while I'm doing that, I'm playing into their commercial cycle. It's economics and sales, dude. <laughs> it, really, it really is. It is. And they almost act as whether you, you know believe it or not and whether the things are you know, psychologically happening, whether it's mental illness or some mm. other thing, they almost act as like therapists. It's almost like a comfort to uh, help ease them of the evils in their house. Mm-hmm. Don't you kind of wish you, you talked about the conning piece? Uh, they would never admit this at this point, and they're both dead, so they're not going to go into that. But almost if these films kind of went into like that aspect of those characters, you know what I mean? If like if they're they had to have been. Uh, but if like Patrick Wilson on the side was really trying to play up that angle and then like, you know what I mean? Like that could be interesting. The charlatans that are paranormal activity hunters. Mm-hmm. It sounds like a script. It does. Yeah. It's, uh, but let's talk about the part of the script that I know works good for both of us. Matt, I know you're dying to talk about this. I have a sound clip queued up just for you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to play it. You run with it. Tell me why you love this so much. Okay. This is crazy. So all these are taken from cases you've investigated. That's right. Everything you see in here is either haunted, cursed, or has been used in some kind of ritualistic practice. Nothing's a toy. Not even the toy monkey. Don't touch it. Oh, <clears throat> well, isn't it scary, or doesn't it worry you to have all these items right in your home? Oh, that's why we have a priest that comes by once a month to bless the room. Well, the way I see it is, it's safer for these things to be in here than out there. It's kind of like keeping guns off the street. Well, why not just throw them in an incinerator, destroy them? Well, that would only destroy the vessel. Sometimes it's better to keep the genie in the bottle. Say, is the uh, Annabelle doll here? Right this way. And that's the first time we see it. (laughs) In this ridiculous glass case. Mm -hmm. Why do I love this? Mm Mm-hmm. First efficiency. Yeah. We talk about that a lot as the craft of writers. Mm -hmm. How can we move through this efficiently with enough information to give the audience something to care about going forward? As we move through this, as you said, treasure treasure chest room or treasure room or whatever this basement. I think they called it a museum because I think you you could actually go visit it. The, okay, so back to the oh, yeah, charlatan no, piece. I, I know, yeah. Let's, you don't have to sell it on me. Like It's all part of it. It's all part of the gag. Can you imagine that? Before you walk in, there's one thing I need to make really clear to you. Yeah. After you pay me your $6, <laughs> you cannot touch anything in here. And if you do, God have mercy on you and your family. Yeah. Not only will we throw you out and not refund your money and call the police, but... You have just, I mean, it is just so set up. Well, it wouldn't be six. Because Suckerville. It wouldn't be six because that number's evil, but it'd be seven. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, it would be. No, you're right. It's, it's It was a museum. You could go tour. The lighting's not great, and we don't get a full frontal of all of the things in there, but you get enough of a tease here and there, and whether it's a vase or that strange suit of armor the, or coffin, this, that the monkey, the monkey, the Duracell monkey thing, um, the top that we're eventually going to see put in there. Every one of those things in there mm-hmm. presents a story. Yeah. And so as we unfold the index of the Conjuring novel as screenplay, you have 65 chapters and the most nondescript thing in there might have extreme significance and interest. And what I love about it mm-hmm. is they stayed away from the candelabra and the crucifix and the dreidel and all of that sort of 
non-secular symbols yeah. or it, it's a fucking vase, man. Mm-hmm. It's a statue of like, it's an action figure. Mm-hmm. It's Annabelle. Yeah. Yeah. It's genius. It's a really smart scene. Uh, this, uh, script, uh, it was written by one of the, as a, as a outline by one of the producers, like 13 years before the movie was made. So like early 2000s. So he had a hard time kind of getting it hmm. put together. And he found these, uh, uh, these two writers, they kind of fleshed it out, but then it created a bidding war. I'm willing to hedge my bets. Oh my God. Why didn't he call us? You know, that the bidding war was because of this, this scene. Better believe it. Right. Because sure. they just saw, oh my God, we could do billions of stories with these two mm-hmm. from the files of, I think the original working title was the Warren files before the conjuring. Yeah. Uh, and to New Line Cinema's credit, New Line Cinema might be becoming my favorite, like big budget studio because they just find a, they just take a, they, they find a way to get it. Mm-hmm. Whether it's Freddy, the Turtles, Lord of the Rings, uh, they got the rights to this and released through Warner Brothers because Warner Brothers bought them out. Uh, amen to them for uh, that. But it was a bidding war between all the major studios. They all wanted a piece of this Conjuring action because of this, the infinite possibility to tell stories on the top. And uh, the this and the wind up monkey or the suit of armor, like what is the suit of armor called? But for whatever reason, this franchise can't get away from that doll. <laughs> okay, so I was going to ask you a question. Maybe you just answered it. But okay. I'll ask you anyway. Okay. With everything that's presented in the, the museum, yeah. From A to F, not top shelf to rocket, but mm-hmm. from A to F, tell me how the execution has been on the promise of the items in that room per story. C minus. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm with you. Yeah. Because we get a non film out of this, and that's from the next movie, and then The Curse of La Llorona. But we, there's three Annabelle movies. Right. There should only be one. Yep. Uh, Tell some different stories in here. I mean, the room is giving you the opportunity. Just pick an item and just make it up. Mm-hmm. It could be a little chest, <laughs> like, with trinkets and shit in there. Like, tell that story. Like, I don't know why they're so hung up on the doll. Dolls are creepy. We get it. Uh, but do something else. I mean, you're going to ruin this franchise before we can really tap into other things. It reminds me a lot of, um, there was a TV show, uh, Friday the 13th, the series. Mm-hmm. Didn't have Jason in it, Mm-mm. but it was like an antique store, and each episode was like a different like item or something. Like, do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that show wasn't very good, but like you get the idea. So I don't know if you want to do this now, but now you have me intrigued. Okay, per the sequencing in years, let's hear it. Well, let me pull it up real quick. Okay, you got a riff. <laughs> He's looking at it. The uh, that. That coffin or that Asian suit of armor or whatever that is in there, every time they enter that, that that image mm-hmm. is so striking. Um, in The Conjuring 2, that image, that toy is in there. Well, Brett, I think maybe I'm stealing your thunder. Which Isn't that toy? in there too? The top thing? The, uh, the No, the... The Crooked Man thing? Yeah, the Crooked Man thing. Isn't that in there too? I don't think it's in there yet, or maybe they put it in there at the end okay. of the movie. I'm dying to hear what this is now. In okay. order. 1952, The Nun. 1955, Annabelle Creation. 1967, Annabelle One. 71 is The Conjuring. 72 is Annabelle Comes Home. I remember nothing about that. 73 is The Curse of La Llorona. 77 is uh, The Conjuring 2. And 1981 is Conjuring The Devil Made Me Do It. So wow. it's Nun, two Annabelles, then this movie, and then kind Annabelle. of... Annabelle. Kind of, kind of, and then some more Annabelle, and then a hodgepodge, but... uh. 
the tie for Curse of La Llorona into this is he's the priest that actually shows up in the first Annabelle movie. He actually goes and priests it up in the La Llorona film. Oh, really? So there's a priest tie that's bringing that all kind of cohesive together. Huh. But they kind of botched that movie too. But you know, we'll get that. We'll, we'll we'll tap into this franchise again because if they keep giving us films, we'll keep talking about them. Sure. But no, this is great. I I know you've been dying to talk about it because it's such a high concept idea. It's a room of cursed items. Tell me the story, please. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a billion stories to be told. Not a billion, but you know you know what I mean. A hundred. Let's talk about the story that's given to us in this one. I thought this was pretty interesting because. You know, I did some research and we did talked about Ed and Lorraine Warren. It's almost interesting that I feel like almost a lot of people hadn't heard about these two until this movie came out. And I actually couldn't find a lot of information on this particular case. There's a whole articles about the one in part two and even part three, but not a lot about this one. And the, the quote in the little tagline is, this is the file that they like held sealed away. They never wanted to talk about it. It's the most evil case that they ever ever discussed. Sounds like marketing. And I think I I, I came to uh, come to Jesus film moment while watching this. And I think I do take issue with the based on true story moniker in horror. Being that when the film when the shit hits the fan, I'm specifically talking about that moment where the girl gets yanked by her hair into like the window and then dragged all over the, mm-hmm. come on. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then the, and the exorcism at the thing, I'm like, did Ed Warren really perform an exorcism of this woman as she's flying about in this chair? Probably not. It's such a suspension of disbelief because they've sold it to us as these are real people. They existed. We get to see the photos at the end. Uh, and so that almost kind of takes me out of it. You know what I mean? That they're so stretching the truth mm-hmm. in this film. Whereas if this was just pure fiction, if this was just like something like The Exorcist or Poltergeist, I'm all in. Like yeah. I would live for something like this. So I think the based on, I got to be careful now going forward, based on a true story, I'm going to kind of be cautious. I almost prefer inspired by a true story, something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. Because they're just taking elements and making their own original idea out of it. Yeah. What, what do you think about that? Because it, it once it got kind of crazy at the end, it started to pull me out of it a little bit because of how fantastical it was getting. The fact that they show the family at the end of the film is all the based on we need. They don't have to say anything. Mm-hmm. Um, per screenwriting language, there's some rules around inspired by and based on and all of that as far as accuracy. And I'm letting everyone know 20% is about as accurate as you're ever going to get. That is, this is the story, like 20%. Yeah, Yeah, that's, you know, I hadn't thought about that. You're right. That little girl getting drug around the room by her hair. It's a great sequence. (laughs) Her horror, it checks all of the things that we want. They can't see it. She's vulnerable. She's got the scissors, uh, like which are going to play a little bit later in the film because mm-hmm. that's what she tries to stab the same girl with, if I'm not mistaken, or one of the other daughters with, right, is the mm-hmm. scissors. Um, yeah, you know, you're right, Jesse. I, I don't have much more to say full of insight than you're right. It, that is such a suspension of disbelief. You don't, you don't need that there. The pictures at the end already do that for us. Yeah. I just feel like they took so many liberties with it, and it's... Had it been like if Ed and Lorraine Warren were those are just made up characters and this is just a ghost haunted house movie, uh, 
I think I'm, I'm all in, you know what I mean? I'm eating this up. And and I'm going to get into some of this stuff because I do like, and a lot of it's James Wan's credit because the mm-hmm. guy's a maestro at horror. Sure. Uh, it's also, I take issue with Amityville horror as well. I mean, they sold that whole thing, and there's a whole hoax element in, into that thing. It was based on that book and whatnot, but... Mm-hmm. Really, the walls bled, ran red with blood. Like, get out of here. You know what I mean? But if they did, I mean, I'll eat crow, but I want to see it. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. Let me sour mash something for you. Okay. I'm going to use a comparison for the Hateful Eight. Okay. When you went and saw the Hateful Eight, mm. what did they give you when you walked in? I bet you still have it. Did oh, you get the, that? the, the roadshow booklet? Yeah. Yeah. I know that in-theater promotions are not something that happen a lot lately. And they haven't in 15, 20 years. Isn't a better play for this to provide some documentation for some resources that are owned by New Line and Warner Brothers, having been purchased by the Warrens, purchased from the Warrens because they wouldn't have the rights unless they did it otherwise. So it'd have to be the estate since they're not around anymore. So talking to Dodd, Mm -hmm. family members, daughter, allow access to a very commercialized studio component of the Warren files while still adhering to whatever piece of honesty the surviving Warren family members still Mm -hmm. demand. And instead of, based on inspired by, this is documentary story Mm -hmm. titles on the black screen when we open, everybody just gets one of those sheets and it's full of... Links that are through the Warner Brothers dot conjuring website, da, 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 da. And then you can go and do as a fan mm-hmm. what you did prepping for this film, which was the research. And you're right. There's not a lot on this case. There's a ton on the next two mm-hmm. and there's a ton on the Amityville, mm-hmm. but there's nothing on this. Yeah. You had a blank slate. Yeah. That could have been cool. Almost like your own, like procedural investigation into it. Like that could have been a fun fan. Like I wish they would do more things like that. And to James Wan, who had already created quite a franchise with the fast and the furious, he understands how to franchise multiple entries into a series. What if on that piece of paper or that handout or booklet, it's five pages. And on each of those five pages is one of those images from the museum. Page one is the monkey. Page two is the this, three, four, five, five, right? Going. And then there's a maybe a brief write-up, and for more information, go to da, 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 da. Yeah, you just stir up. The pages. marketing machine is in full effect, and are we really going to say that's not what the Warrens were about? Because, yes, they were. Yeah. You're right. And then you don't need that up there. Mm-hmm. And then I don't care. Now now you know what? I really want to look into that family. Yeah. Was that little girl drug around by her hair? Yeah, then you go go dig in for the truth, so to speak. You have screen material for decades. Absolutely. As long as Farmiga and Wilson want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see how much they want to keep doing it. Well, I think we're going to find out a lot in this third one. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It kind of feels like a make or break film for them and this franchise. It's a little franchise is a little on the ropes right now, isn't it? I would just say, I just, I mean, for it needs, because this film, very huge hit. We'll do the numbers at the end and people really liked it. It has great Rotten Tomatoes scores, uh, but it's kind of like just, Every little entry is a little bit more down, a little bit more down. Mm-hmm. Like we need one that's like brings the punch. You know what I mean? Yes. Like one that's like we can say is this is a good entry in the franchise. Yeah. I mean, every franchise needs that. I mean, Freddie needed a good entry after part two. He got it in the Dream Warriors. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So 
Uh, let's find. Let's get to the house. This family. Uh, what's their name? The Talon family? No, that's 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 not right. Uh, gosh, oh. Lily Taylor's the mom. Yeah, Lily Taylor. When's the last time you saw her? Uh, the uh, par- six feet under the Perrin family. The Perrin family and Ron Livingston. Yep. Uh, Mr. Office Space. Yeah. Five girls. They move into this new house, and I really, really like how uh, the scares are paced out uh, with this family. It's a little bit here, and it's the dog dies first. Oh, that that's always so hard for me. And the dog was like, "Bitch, don't go in the house." He's like saying, "I'm not going in there," and so I'll leave him outside. Something horrible happened to him. And then, like the next night, you know, they're hearing noises and creaks. And it just escalates. And this is something that James Wan is so good at. And starting out with Saw and then, you know, Dead Silence and then Insidious. I mean, this guy is really good in a supernatural space and a suspense space. Say what you will about the rest of the Saw franchise. The first one is crafted really well. And there's some moments in there that, like, are really good jump scares. And it's all, I'm thinking of the moment in particular, Lee Winnell with his camera illuminating his apartment because he knows someone's in there with him and it's a person in the pigment such a great sequence you're just waiting for it and when it hits you you're unprepared mm-hmm. and you know it's coming mm-hmm. uh those two guys actually they started out that that first film as a short movie they met at college uh can't remember which college they went to but they're like hey got an idea let's do it as a short film people liked it they got some a little bit of money to do a feature through Lionsgate. Twisted Pictures, it blew up into what that became. And then that was like, let's go to the rate. Let's, what else are we going to do? They do Dead Silence. Have you ever seen Dead Silence? Is that the one with uh, the doll? The, yeah. It's, it's like a mannequin. It's the mar- it's not marionette. A, a puppet. Yeah. It's a puppet. Though. No. But I, I know. I thought that was terrible. Is it good? I was pretty, I like it. Really? Okay. I took my grandma to see that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? Yes. I got into a weird uh, period there in 05 and 06 where I was taking my grandma to see uh, movies with me and she wanted to go. So Casino Royale, that one, and something else crazy. Wow. She she had a blast watching it, but it's got some really decent scares and he must really like dolls because that movie's all about dolls Mm -hmm. and whatnot. Donnie Wahlberg's in that movie too. Yeah. And then he kind of diverted to, he did a movie, I don't know if you've seen, it's called Death Sentence, Kevin Bacon. It's a Death Wish-esque movie. So Mm -hmm. not horror, but like more like revenge- this Action. is 1L? No, this is Juan, oh, Juan. Juan and, and 1L. I think they co-wrote and in Juan directed. It was kind of an interesting partnership. And that kind of didn't do so great. And I had I didn't hear a lot about James Wan. And then he had this movie Insidious come out. And I was like, let me go check that out. And it was like James Wan, Lee 1L wrote it with him. And he's in it. Uh, and that was like a return to form. Like that was like in the space, the ghost space, the further. Patrick Wilson, of course, mm-hmm. they met him. And I was like, yeah, I think he's back on track. I think he should stay in the space. And then this movie comes out. So it fits his techniques perfectly. Yeah. There's a moment I want to play here that's, it's just, it's why I like his his horror films. Do you see it? See what? There's someone behind the door. What? So as a viewer, you're participatory. I don't, see anyone. don't go look behind that door. That's exactly what this girl's going to do. Right at us. Nancy, don't. Nancy, no, no, look. 
Look. Look, there's no one. There's no one here. See? Ugh. It's that smell again. Oh, my God. Listen closely. It's standing right behind you. So good. It's just a dark shadow behind a door. And it's just the thought of what's over there, what's behind there. And then the little girl is just like, it's right behind you. And the use of sound and then the sound cuts and you're just waiting at this point. You're waiting for the tension to release in some capacity and you're just unprepared every time. This is a great sequence. Light that fuse of tension and let it go. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. And this whole kind of just little montage with the family as they're trying to set up this house and having the worst time about it, all these terrible things happen to them is it's all very well done. This might be my favorite part of the movie is just kind of the escalating uh, conflict because then it just ends up with Lily Taylor in the basement with the clapping. Really well done, I think. I think you said it really perfect right there. Mm. Escalating. You start with something like the clock stopping or maybe some nondescript bruise on mom's shin. Mm -hmm. And then that turns into the pictures on the wall are twisted and the clocks have stopped and mom has another bruise. And as the thing builds and builds and builds, what you continue to do is you remove the possibility that that's just something that caused the picture to move other than happenstance because it's happened now four nights in a row. This space, whether it's Blumhouse or whether it's Ari Aster mm-hmm. or some of the other people that have mastered this craft, is essential because the one-off that's too heavy a blow upon its initial appearance in the story becomes forgettable. Yeah, We talk about the rule of three all the time. Mm-hmm. It applies here too for us as audience members because... If you just have a shadow behind the door in the middle of the night and the kids sleepwalks and all of these other things and it's a new house, it's easy just to shuck it off as nothing. But this tension is escalating and the power of this entity seems to be growing and that gets back to that thing that we've talked around a lot, which is, is it feeding on the fear of the preyed upon and that's allowing it to return in its full form. Well, we're going to have a conversation about it in a second because yeah. we need to talk about the rules, but it's not time yet. <laughs> okay, but to the idea on the crafting of this, oh no, it's handled it, perfectly well, brilliantly. And I thought that was it because you know Juan usually has a hand in the screenwriting, and he didn't, so he just gets to be director on this mm-hmm. one, so in control of how the scares are going to play out, the staging of them. I mean, for those of that have never dabbled into like making their own films, like it's kind of hard to like you know if you're doing a spooky movie. To like find a way to scare people, you know what I mean? You got to use sound and you got to like do stuff with these people got to walk in the frame. You got to use darkness and it can't just, it's not going to be the gore. That's just going to repulse them. You got to get them a different way, almost psychologically. And Juan's a master at that. You know what I mean? I wish she just Aquaman would just die the franchise. Uh, so he could come back and play in horror. You know what I mean? Yeah. Maybe that's the nightcap man. <laughs> Maybe it is. <laughs> Because he's so good at it. You know what I mean? And he's given us so many different ideas. I mean, Saw's this well, torture porn, but it's it's like a game. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's like a, a game, and Jigsaw's his own interesting psychological teacher of sorts. 
Death or uh, Dead Silence is this like puppet marionette type thing. Insidious is like a ghost world. The further, I mean, oh my god. Mm-hmm. And then this is like, you know, from like based on a true story. And he actually, that's why he wanted to do it was because it presented a different challenge because it was kind of based in, in fact, 20% fact, yeah. but it was at least different enough from some of the other stuff he had done. The release of tension in the <gasps> yikes moment is a very delicate art. You don't want to draw it out so long that people become disinterested but you don't want to make it so short that it didn't have time enough to build in the audience's expectations to matter. And that's just done. That's done in editing, certainly, but that's done with just James Wan through some act. And maybe it's the conversations that he had with Winnell, or maybe it's just really loving the craft of horror, truly being in control of what, again, here's that word efficiency in how the story is told, whether it's the museum or the scares. And Lee Winnell's no slouch either. We had glowing praise for the Invisible Man remake. Yeah, we and we're it. very excited for the Wolfman he's doing and uh, can't wait. his Escape from New York remake. I mean, these Boy, guys, what a nice couple big films for him. Yeah, I mean, the, the, these guys, I mean, they, they've crafted a nice, nice, some nice careers out of, the, out of Saw. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, we talk about Ari Aster a lot. Mm hmm. Lee Winnell is one of those hit the Wolfman away from oh, being in that conversation, time. isn't he? Big time, yeah. And maybe to a position that you and I like more because I think we probably favor the un- classic Universal stuff as opposed to just general garden variety supernatural baddie. Sure. Oh man, yeah, that's a big movie for us. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, Ryan. Ryan Gosling, deliver. Can happen. You know what I mean? I, I see it. It can't be an American werewolf in Paris. That movie is trash. Right. Uh, but everything escalates to a point where Lily Taylor's got to go. I got to go find some help. And so she goes to the college tour circuit of the Warrens. And there's something horrible happening in my house. Could you come and take a look? You know, uh, it's getting kind of late. We, we really need to be here. No, you don't understand. Oh, but we do. There's usually some sort of rational I explanation. I have five daughters who are scared to death. I'm so afraid this thing wants to hurt us. I mean, you have a daughter. I mean, wouldn't you do anything you could to protect her? Please. Please, can you come and take a look? Of course we will. Of course we will. I see the traces of the con in there because Patrick Wilson's like, we really don't have the time to be going and looking into that. You know what I mean? Like, he's ready to get home. Like, the, I just wish they would go into that more because that that's that's a layered type mm-hmm. of character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but she comes to, to to get help from the only people that can that that can help out. Uh, well, let's talk about Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga. Uh, I have something interesting to say about Vera Farmiga. I I think she's good at this character. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily know if she's like an amazing actress, but she like does this like scared face all through this entire franchise, and I think it works for this movie in particular. Uh, and I like her in like uh, up in the air and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. But outside of that, I don't. I don't know if I'm, I would call myself like a Vera Farmiga fan. Departed. It's an ensemble piece. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah so that that's a little tougher. But here she has to kind of be at the forefront. Bates Motel. Did you ever do Bates Motel? Yeah, that, that was that was pretty. That was pretty decent. I don't know. There's just a vibe that she like kind of gives me. I'm, I'm with you. She's I yes. I don't know what it is. It's 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 odd. She's Betty Davis, Jesse, a less talented Betty Davis. Yeah. She even looks like her. A little bit, yeah. But she plays scared, 
clairvoyant real well. She does. She has like these beady eyes and she has like this scared look on her face. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's this. Yeah. But Patrick Wilson, I like Patrick Wilson. Patrick Wilson was probably could get into the conversation of, uh, oh shit, Guy Pierce and Thomas Jane. I'm being like one roll away from like hitting it big, but maybe he doesn't want that because this is kind of big. You know what I mean? Yeah. Being in a franchise like this, but with, I liked him Phantom of the Opera, the Watchmen, uh, and then Insidious, and he's really good in a film. I don't know if you've seen called Little Children. Oh yeah, I've seen that. Uh, so like he's he's always been around and uh-huh. been pretty decent. So he has a good presence. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, this he's always like this fatherly figure. I don't know what that's about, but you I see him in Fargo when they did this the episodic. Oh yeah, yeah, good yeah. In, mm-hmm. He's good. Yeah, I buy I buy him as as Ed Warren. Oh yeah, yeah, yes. I just wish they would get into it because, you know, there's all the stories and you alluded to it a little bit and we'll save some ammo for the later episodes. But Ed Warren was a bit of a bastard. He was. <laughs> uh, I would like to just see some of that instead of just kind of good natured. I know they're the heroes, but your heroes can be a little a little gray sometimes. And it's just that's that's called the character arc, everybody. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they've hidden it really well if they wanted to use it because he can hide behind the guys if I have to protect my family. Mm-hmm. Unless the price is right. And then maybe I can sell off some of my wife's clairvoyant ability to rescue your family how much do you love your family jesse because for the right price i can fix this for you exactly fucker yep so they go to the house and they kind of do a barrage of investigations and spooky happenings uh what do you kind of think of because you know you draw the parallel to like family and they have a daughter and there's a family with their daughters and they kind of fit right in you know what i mean they kind of like help them out with dishes and this and that and for all the kind of complaining he did a second ago of we don't have the time they're like in it you know what i mean especially when she says there's something evil here ed there's something i'm feeling something terrible (laughs) there's a four minute period and i watched it again today Mm. and it's from the scene in which the family is having pancake breakfast together Mm -hmm. to Lorraine hanging the laundry on the line outside and it flies off and catches some silhouetted structure behind her that no one can see. And then flies up to the window from the joy that they are experiencing sharing pancakes and Patrick Wilson and Lorraine saying, do you remember what I told you on my wedding light? Mm. Can we do it again? No, after that, whatever, like whatever that, (laughs) and that kind of works too for them. Mm -hmm. Right. Some, in some weird sort of awkward because let's be honest, this is a pretty awkward relationship. And even if it was illegitimate and that was the legitimacy of it, like conning people, that's also an awkward space to be in. Cause you, can you ever trust your lover? Yeah. How do you know she's not conning you, Ed? I know. Okay. So it's awkward, but they play it off pretty straight and comfortable in the space that I talked about in the flight with, it only has to matter to those two. It turns like that mm-hmm. he goes to help um ron livingston <laughs> ron livingston with the car and she's fixing the the laundry and it instantly goes from laundry silhouette to window silhouette to in lily taylor and the movie turns 180 degrees because they almost have a leg up at this point mm-hmm. the warrens are on the path they've almost figured that they're bringing their gear in They're bringing their team in. They're going to find this demon or whatever it is, and they're going to fix this, and they're going to rescue this family, and we're going to share pancakes, and I'm going to fix your car, and I love you so much, I'm even going to buy the carburetor. Mm -hmm. Even that's a con because he knows somebody at the junkyard, and he got a second hand. Yeah. Ed Warren's a con artist, but in this, (laughs) he doesn't want to pay for a new carburetor, so good for Ron Livingston. It works. It makes them really likable. 
but in four minutes, mm-hmm. the movie completely turns. So if this is the second act reversal, clearly it is. Yeah. Boy, it turns. Well, let's get to that because, you know, then literally the shit hits the fan. Yeah, Not in an airplane sense, but in... Uh, window in a, sense. <laughs> Laundry on the window sense. Yes. Uh, and then, yeah, into Lily Taylor. She goes into the wall or there's a, one of the daughters was in the wall. They get her out. And then Lorraine goes into the basement and there's a bunch of crazy shit. Or no, she gets inside the walls. Yeah, so Lily Taylor ends up getting drugged down the mm-hmm. clap place, right? So they go down there, and she's getting bounced off the walls, and that exorcism then begins. That's pretty terrifying stuff. Though. Wait, I thought the exorcism was at the end. Yeah, what part are you talking about? Yeah, but it's like it's like because where well, she finds the noose. Is that what you're talking? Where yeah, Lorraine finds it? Okay, yeah, yeah Lorraine. Okay, sorry, yeah, sorry, she sorry. ends up in like the walls. Yeah, you're right. And they're like Lorraine. Sorry, I'm ahead of you. Yeah. <laughs> Lorraine, where are you? <laughs> I was talking. I think it was something different. No, yeah, you're yeah, right. We'll get to that, but uh, Lorraine, where are you? And she's in the basement. She's stuck in the walls, and then she like, oh yeah loses her necklace on the thing. Uh, and then yeah, the moment we kind of alluded to, just like it's just chaos at this point. It's demon chaos. She visits Kellen every night. That's what the bruise marks are. She's feeding off of her. Uh, Nancy? Didn't, don't they go into some detail that she was like some sort of like, I was going to say relic of the Salem witch trials, mm-hmm. right? So is this a demon or is this a witch or is this a ghost? And where are the lines and where are the rules? <laughs> it's fair. Bathsheba is actually a witch. Yeah. And there is some, like some evidence that that was in fact a real player in some Salem witchcraft yeah. embodiment. Mm-hmm. The general premise is, I'm going to birth these children and then sacrifice them in some fealty to the Lord of the underworld. And by doing that, I will curry more favor with Satan and thus become more powerful. And that's all happening in this house that the Warrens have just purchased. Yeah. Not the Warrens, the, the per- parents, parents, sorry. Yeah. And that the Warrens are exercising for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. I like this. And here's why I like this. Mm-hmm. We have roundly trashed, witches and supernatural before on this show <laughs> right paranormal three and suspiria <laughs> and suspiria i didn't think about that yeah that didn't yes yeah. i think it's an interesting way to go mm-hmm. with the witchcraft element because it can play as so hokey this doesn't though and it's not just general baddie ghost demon this is yeah i was gonna I was gonna. Which? I was gonna ask you what you thought of the antagonist in this in this particular injury. If it was a formidable opponent, uh, definitely formidable. I mean, Lily Taylor is turning into a ghoul, and she's got bruises, and they're yanking the kids all over the all over the place. And there's that scene we didn't talk about, but she's on top of the mm-hmm. wardrobe, mm-hmm. going ah, and then jumps down. Like that all works for me. But then I get all caught up into. This is the part of the film. You you got to have your little moment uh, a couple a couple weeks ago on the Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash Rise Smile Films. There's a plug, everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the Fight Club episode when you kind of had a sticking point when Tyler Durden per- puts his seatbelt on and you kind of were like, yeah, that's, I can't buy that. You know what I mean? Okay, yeah. 
Ooh, so, this is going to be good. I can't wait. So after this scene, the family is like, the hell with this. We're going into a motel. We're going to get away from this. The warden's like, well, we'll go home. We're going to call the Vatican and see if we can do some sort of exorcism or something. We got to get approval first. And then all of a sudden, like Annabelle becomes the conduit of Bathsheba through the linkings of the necklace because mom and daughter have one. So then I'm like, okay, like mm-hmm. this is a witch, this is a demon, but there's no set rules. I was like, I was like, but you kind of need rules. You know what I mean? You can't just be jumping from artifacts and into different households to create chaos. And it's a really troubling scene for me because I'm like, fuck, like don't leave the house. Keep the action in the house because you're talking about rising and discerning tension. Keep the tension on an 11 because you, you got me. You know what I mean? Like that hair pull into the glass. That's a great moment. I mean, in the theater, people were like, holy shit. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Uh, so stay there. Keep that going. No, like we almost killed the movie by going back to the Warren house because the daughter gets locked in the room with the doll and Bathsheba. And I'm like, well, this would be like if like in Halloween, if Loomis was on the streets and he'd be like, Michael, oh, I got to go back to Smith's Grove and talk to Dr. Wynn. And he goes to Smith's Grove for a bit and then comes back. You know what I mean? Like, I do. Yes. That happened in Pet Cemetery too, where they were the remake, where they were going up and down the mountain to bring back the dead and reanimate them. <laughs> That's just maybe just a Jesse issue. But like, I hate when we leave the place. They don't leave Reagan's room. Reagan doesn't leave that room at all. And I think that's a bit of a misstep. It's not enough to kill the movie entirely for me, but I really wish they wouldn't have done it because it ties back to the doll that really shouldn't even be a factor at this late stage in the game. There's 15 things you said there, and they're all right. Mm. What the hell is that? Live Tyler film, The Strangers, right? Yeah that you and I have differing opinions on, but my mm. big sticking point is they go in and then go back out. <laughs> it, yeah. It breaks the that's threshold. A, that's a great moment too. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the theater in that scene was like, Oh shit. Oh my God. Who's that? And then they like sneak out and then it becomes just this cat and mouse. Uh, shit. We'll do that movie one of these days. Yeah. So with what you're saying, when you leave the house, then you've provided an escape route. And so back to that suspension of disbelief, look, man, get out of there you wouldn't wait around but if you have to wait around you have to make sure that i feel like and you do too Mm -hmm. you can't leave and you know else is really maddening about it yeah they try to leave lily taylor and bathsheba starts to rip her skin apart yeah so you've created like the invisible wall that they can't go past i was just gonna say too they uh but yet they do it's like the screenwriter's Thought they needed to do so much, but like we got to bring the doll back. We need to do something with their daughter to make the stakes bigger for the Warrens. But then we're also possessing Lily Taylor. That way she goes back to the house. I mean, it's possession, it's witches, it's artifact transference, it's possessed dolls, and it's it's too much for me. The and the film's good enough where it doesn't need to do this. I'm glad that they rein it back in and finally get back to the house because if it like if the ending wasn't as if this exorcism scene wasn't as good as it is, yeah. I would my yeah. ratings would really falter in this regard. And they might for you too. I don't think you've brought up a point so far that I haven't agreed with. It's just interesting, you know, and, and I hadn't seen this in, in a really long time, so a lot of it was pretty fresh and uh you know, kind of coming back to me. But I always, I remember this part specifically. I was like, well, I remember a scene where it's raining and they go back to their house and some shit with the doll. 
and it's it, it's not tied to like the story and it's what whatever let's let's move past it but well, no let's talk about that because i think there's something here mm-hmm. the reason the doll has access to their daughter do we even know her the warren's daughter's name judy judy yeah that's right the reason that bathsheba can get to Judy is because Lorraine Warren has left a necklace on a peg in the basement. We've seen already a couple of other moments in the basement that weren't Bathsheba. We've seen that rather large lady that we're assuming is one of the people that's been sacrificed or has been, has gone down the route that Lily Taylor is going down. Um, we've seen Rory. That's the mm-hmm. little boy who I'm assuming is one of the the children that's been sacrificed. Yeah. I think is more of a good element than a bad element mm-hmm. in this film. But there's been no explanation as to how the possession of an item that doesn't yeah. belong to the girl allows access to the girl in her house. Yeah. And I don't want the film to take the time to set up those rules because that's going to take another 20 minutes. I'm like, this is already kind of a long movie. Let's get to it already, and I feel like we could have done without this. And especially because we see Judy floating in the water by the dock that Lorraine is standing on, and that's the warning issue. Mm -hmm. That's what sends Lorraine home. And she won't tell Ed. Do you remember that scene where she's on the phone? She's like, Lorraine, what's going on? God damn it, Lorraine, what's going on? (laughs) She won't tell him. I love it. I know, she won't. (laughs) And then we get to this part that you're talking about in Bathsheba, although it's a great scene, sitting in that rocking chair, combing Anna, or brushing Annabelle's hair, yeah. is super and creepy. It turns its head, yeah. That's really creepy, and it steals the film for a little while. But it does. It becomes of the doll and the Warrens, and I was like, well, what about the family? And, and then it's in a phone call where, like, her, I can't remember her name. Lily Taylor just took two of the kids. She just took off. Mm-hmm. And then the dad comes back and he's like, well, what happened? So he's got to call the warrants. And it's just like chaos at the end. Mm-hmm. But we do get back to the house and it's good because, man, they pulled out all the punches for this final sequence here. Yeah. In the name of the Father, the Son. Holy Spirit. Vade retro, Satana. Santa Michael Archangeli. Defende nosem praelio. The sound design alone Scary, is terrifying. so good. Uh, yeah, so this... <laughs> but then the other part of me watching this time, I was like, okay, did Ed Warren really perform this exorcism in this basement? Probably not. Ed, you don't know how to perform an exorcism. Do we have a choice? No. You can do it because I love you. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little almost... It's a little cringy, but it's a good thing this, the, the scene packs the booze and the frights and all the... The scare, there's just something about the demon voice in film. I don't care if it's paranormal activity or the exorcist. Oh, no, I got one for you. That good. It's uh, the exorcism of Emily Rose mm-hmm. in the barn where all seven of them run through her. That, that garbled, like, demon, like, <laughs> yeah, I can't even um, do it, not doing it, but it's like, it's just, it's like almost like it's growling, like a gargoyle or some crazy thing. Guttural. 
Ooh, yeah, yikes. Yeah, that's that's all great. Uh, but then she starts flipping around in the chair and flipping all around the basement. And it gets a little too crazy for my taste. Mm-hmm. But they're finally able to kind of squash it, and they're able to, like I said, they're able to therapy therapy the demon out of her because you know what I mean. Like <laughs> Lorraine doesn't have like. She doesn't know how to do these exorcisms. She's just there for support at this point to, to help Ed. But they're able to get it out of Lily Taylor at the end of the day. <laughs> at least it's set up. Yeah. Helping Lily Taylor remember that scene on the beach and Lorraine acting as the conduit or the clairvoyant with the touch on her head to force that memory's return. That's the uncanny, right? Mm-hmm. So that's core tenant of horror here that we're playing with. And at least it's based in family, and there's no question that the film has built some structure or significance in family. So we're using what's available. I do agree. The sheet over Lily Taylor and the chair turns upside down, the shotguns blowing just random holes and like oh, yeah. all that that's that's a bit far fetched. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of this film plays in that space. And what I mean by that is I'm not sure there's tons of new information that's shown to us for the first time. It's just executed pretty well. Yeah. And those elements you just talked about, those, those seem like the Hollywood elements to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. To like spice it up and make it as scary as humanly possible. Mm-hmm. It's not enough that she's exercising. Cause ex- hide and ex- clap is scarier. Exercising, not uh. exercising. <laughs> uh, no, that shotgun needs to be going off. She needs to be spinning in that chair. She needs to be spitting blood everywhere. Whereas Friedkin's exorcist would be like, well, she's just going to be in this bed. And she's <laughs> going to rise up and down. <laughs> For all the chair spinning and shotgun blowing, you know what's more effective than that? Mm-hmm. Is when the sheet tears. Yes. And we get the reveal, semi-reveal, mm-hmm. of Bathsheba. Yeah, that's good. In posi- and it's not even fully revealed. Mm-hmm. Boy, here's something that I've never said before on this podcast. Less is more, especially in horror. Have you ever heard that before? No, never. Never. Oh, wow. It is. And too much is far too much. And when you have random shotgun blasts and chairs spinning on an axis that doesn't exist and defying all versions of gravity and Bathsheba being able to red line of travel across the globe with the mere occupation of a a necklace. Yeah. You've just taken it a bit too far. And back to what you said earlier was such a good point. Mm-hmm. Really is a good point. Based on a true story really is a big problem in this film. Yeah. You're right. It is. It's a huge problem. Because we got to be like, did this happen? And you got to be like, yeah, probably not. I mean, basically what they ate pancakes one morning with the parents. That might be the basis. Yeah, that's <laughs> That <laughs> happened. You're right. Probably did. Uh, Ed worked on a car out there with Ed Ron, made him pay for with it. Ron Livingston made him pay for that carburetor. <laughs> yeah. I have a question for you, maybe more just uh, if you know or not. Ed calls himself a demonologist. There was a demonologist in the Paranormal Activity movie because he kept showing up and then he showed up and it was too late. Yeah. What do you have to do to get a title like the demonologist? Is that just a certificate I could get online? You want me to tell you the truth? When I was registering us for podcast school, okay. that was the class in the hallway across the way okay. where we heard those guttural groans. Yeah. We didn't go to that one. No, we didn't. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if I want to take that class. I think it might be as something as simple as like an online certificate that we could get and we could be Matt and Jesse demonologists. Let's look into that it. It sounds like a TV show. Support uh, that. It sounds like, you know, how you can get ordained as a minister. No, you just, you just, Jesse, you've just come up with screenwriting gold, man. Yeah. You and I can create the 2021 version of The Sting. 
you get your license in demonology. I'll get my license as the three minute online minister and we will play off each other. And that my friend is a script gold masterpiece. Is it a comedy? Yes. <laughs> and meanwhile, then we report back every night and extol the virtues of whatever scam we pulled off. Dude, you are onto something here. That's, good. That's high concept gold. Everybody. There you go. It's, we'll call it high and low. Evil and good. <laughs> That's a terrible title. Oh, that's good, dude. No, no, I was just wondering. No, those titles are not good, but that idea is good. Well, because his book that's based on them is called The Demonologist. So that's like a title you get because, and then that guy had it in Paranormal Activity. Like, I was like, you don't go to school for that because. Did you just hand someone a business card? Hey, mom and dad, I'm majoring in demonology. <laughs> what? If they were running around in real, yeah, that'd be a legitimate degree to pursue. But that's just kind of like, I would love to just walk into a party and just be like, my name's Jesse. I'm, I'm a, a demonologist. demonologist. <laughs> oh, my God. My name is Matt. Yeah. I'm a minister. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh, that could be good. That's pretty good. But they finish exercising Lily Lily Taylor here. Do you remember Lily Taylor was in the the uh, Haunting remake? She, yeah. she played Eleanor Crane. That was probably the last time I saw her in, in a movie. Uh, and we kind of wrap hey. up. We've covered her on the show before. High Fidelity. Oh, that's right. She's one of his five exes. Anyway, yeah. You're right. That, that was a while back. That was a while back. But the family, they reunite, you know, everything's good. I would move the hell out of that house. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, even though they stuck. I always get stressed out now, you know, being like a homeowner. And then I was like, God, this what a horrible situation to be in as these people. They just literally moved into this house and all this terrible stuff happens. And the natural inclination is I got to get out. But like you got all this equity in this house. Like what a nightmare. <laughs> so short sale. The, the film does definitely doesn't give you that impression, but. Uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren go back to the museum. They've taken, and we didn't talk a little bit about this kind of spinny like music box thing, but that was kind of, that wasn't the conduit though, right? That's just all they ever saw. That's what they used to see Rory. Mm -hmm. That's all, right? Yeah. I guess. They I guess they felt, felt the need to take it because that had some sort of evil in there, even though we kind of established Rory was a, a good ghost. Shouldn't <laughs> it be Lorraine's necklace? Yeah, probably. That was like some sort of gateway to get to their house. They should put that necklace around Annabelle. Ooh. That way it's double trapped. Okay. I like that. But I'm going to sour mash the ending again because I didn't think Annabelle should have showed up until this very scene here where I love this kind of great scene because this is like the scene in Batman Begins where Gordon's like, take this guy. And it's the Joker card. And you're like, yeah, we're going here next. I love it. Mm -hmm. But it's this scene where she's like, the Vatican called. Uh, they approved the exorcism. And Patrick Wilson's like, what timing? And then she's like, well, they want us to go look at some case up in La, 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 Long Island. Yeah. Amityville. Yeah. Setting up the sequel. You know what I mean? It's like that parting line. It's almost silly, but I'm like, yeah. I, but as a viewer, and I know enough about these spooky things i know what that means mm -hmm. and then we kind of do a little kind of focus close up on the music box as it's playing and i love that james one has the credit to not go for some last minute jump scare and it just like cuts to black right away but my sour mash is we pan around after that bit of text uh, ed warren's quote his snake oil quote <laughs> and he, we pan over to the annabelle doll and we just kind of close in on it close in on it close in on it and we like see all, one of the eyes like move like a centimeter, cut to black. Mm -hmm. And we just established that this thing's still evil and we can tell a story with this thing. It doesn't need to dominate this entire movie. It's fair. You're right. <laughs> so 
that that was just interesting because, especially because she's had three movies. I I don't, I don't know. <laughs> a little too Hollywooded for you. A little bit. Maybe not even a little bit. Maybe a lot. And maybe that's not fair. But especially around this time when I rattled off all those films that you're next, it follows the witch, you know, the Babadook. Indie horror at this time is on another level. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're crafting some crazy. The Invitation. Do you remember mm-hmm. The Invitation? Uh-huh. We got to do The Invitation one of these days. Yeah. What an underrated gem that a lot of people haven't seen. Yep. Uh, you kind of get those touches because it's made through the Hollywood system of those almost seem like studio notes. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, and we've talked a lot of Warner Brothers specifically. You must have the Flash do this in this instant. Right. Yes. Superman will have that blue and, uh, blue and red suit, so help me God. Mm-hmm. Uh, that These seem like studio notes of you got to include these moments so, you know, we kind of allude to something like, like that. And you know, the truth is Warner Brothers would probably say, well, that's why this made so much money compared to It Follows or The Invitation. But that's actually not the case. Yeah. The truth on that is... You put a studio PA machine behind it and made an amazing poster. That poster itself is creepy as hell with the noose hanging from the tree. It's, oh my God. Well, the trailer was good. The trailer was yeah. essentially wasn't anything about the movie. It was essentially Lily Taylor playing the clap game. And then it ended, the teaser ended with the clap behind her neck. Like it was that whole sequence mm-hmm. coming this summer. It was a summer release. So. Yeah, Warner Brothers, you didn't need all those bells and whistles, did you? They didn't, but uh, they laughed all the way to the bank with them. Um, okay, so just a couple things here. You know, I mentioned the bidding war. Uh, several legal disputes uh, attached to this film, one from the owners of the parent house. So when this film came out, it was almost kind of created a lot of negative animosity towards that house where they were like, well, fuck, you made this movie. Now we can't live in our house. So they're like, okay, we're out of here. And so they sued Warner Brothers. I don't know if they got any money from that. Hmm. And then another one from. Gerald Brittle, who was kind of the scribe of the Warrens, and he wrote a lot of the books it was, he was essentially sitting with the Warrens and they were spinning their yarn and he would write it into a book who claimed he had film rights to these films and subsequent sequels. So he sued and they actually settled out of court for an undisclosed amount. I wonder how much it was because <laughs> what's this franchise worth now? I mean, these movies don't take a lot to make 10, 15 million. They do pretty decent business. That's an interesting lawsuit. I wonder if he sued on IP because he was the first one to pin the story and then adapting that is copyright infringement. Yeah, I think he sued oh, interesting. because of, you know, the Warren's story rights. Mm-hmm. And then I don't know how this other producer got a hold of it, but you see, that's why you got to get a guy, sign your contracts and make them legal because shit like that happens. You yeah. know what I mean? Jim Croce. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and you, uh, Jerry and uh, Joe Schu- uh, Jerry Siegel and Joe, Joe Schuster, Schuster yeah. creators of Superman. Those guys were working at a post office in the 70s, barely making ends meet, and they mm. created Superman, for God's sake. Sucks. Uh, but uh, 20, oh, hang on a second. I want a $20 million budget, uh, $319 million gross. That's a decent chunk of change right there. And, and it was a summer release. I mean, you don't get a lot of horror in summer, so that's pretty decent. But do you have anything else you want to say about The Conjuring? No, I think we've covered it pretty well. So what's your favorite tasting note of this film? 
Uh, I think it is in that basement bit when that sheet rips and we get the half transformed, half revealed look at Lily Taylor being turned into or from Bathsheba. Mm -hmm. It's bloody and it's wet and her face looks like it's ripping. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's really well done and even more well done now that I know that the Bathsheba character was in fact the composer. composer. Uh, It's a really good job of makeup. I'm going to pick the same sequence, but maybe just the whole exorcism bit in itself. It's really well done. I mean, we don't get a lot of those types of scenes and they're all bowing down to the altar of Friedkin's exorcism. But this one's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Get, get those guns and the spinning chairs out of there, and it's a pretty well-done sequence. So that's my favorite part of the movie. What's the... Oh, my God! We need to have some more of the old elk small batch sour mash barrel to wash our taste of that scene. There's a lot to pick from. When Elaine is out by the tree, sorry, Lorraine is out by the tree and the feet, I'm assuming from Bathsheba, mm-hmm. descend down and you don't get much more other than the close on her feet and they are old and white and wrinkly and until she's been hung, whew, that's hard for me to watch. Trailer shot too, right? Yeah. Rough. Mine's the hair pulling bit. Mm-hmm. That's a good one too. Because something like that could almost be laughable in the theater. Mm-hmm. And I specifically remember that was a moment where people were just like, oh, my God, like, this is getting worse and worse and worse. And it's it's a great moment in, in the in the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, Juan handles it, and they're trying to wrangle the girl, and she keeps slipping, and then Lorraine cuts her hair, and the girl's going to have split ends now. <laughs> uh, but it's a great sequence. Who's the master distiller on The Conjuring? What if I went with Vera Farmiga? Sure. That's who I'm going to go with. Go for it. Look, I mean, I'm sure we're going to talk about some of the other characters along the way here. Maybe this is just a cheap opportunity for me to recognize her. I do like her work. I'm a bit different than you. I do kind mm-hmm. of find her to be pretty interesting and I think underrecognized. She's really good in this, and they kind of costume her in a way that looks like 70s good witch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> High-necked, roughly... Um, kind of puritanical in a weird supernatural 70s sort of way. Uh, she looks great. I think she delivers. And she's real comfortable in this awkward position of playing the love interest for this con team. Because that's what I think the Warrens are. Good the con, con, the con team with their snake oils? I do. I love it. I think they're full of crap. Uh, What's yours? Hang, on, yours? hang on one sec because I got I to gotta find it because this was a new recollection for me. Uh, with with this one. Mm-hmm. Oh, fuck. It's 39 people. Shit. The 39 people that worked in the sound department on this film because this film sounds amazing. Okay. The demon guttural screams. I can't stress enough. You know, if you watch movies, you know, everyone can't have like the home theater system set up. I understand. Uh, but if you're watching a movie on your phone or a laptop, like, oh, like that, that, it's a knife through my heart. At least on some sort of system where you can at least kind of recreate what was meant to be listened to in the theater, because this movie sounded shit's flying from the left and the right, and you're like, oh my god, and you feel like the thing's in the room with you. Uh, that's an experience, and that's something that Juan was really good at. Uh, 
the the sound i had forgotten how really good they they use breathing and screams and breaking glass and there's the whole bit with the birds that are smashing into the the windows and killing themselves that's all really good and it's all just you're just hearing it really well done in my opinion yeah it's really well done i'll save james wan for another day (laughs) he might come up again i'm sure sure how are you gonna rate and grade the first conjuring i think you brought up some really good points and i don't think that although noticeable in the breakdown were enough to really change how I feel about the movie. But I do want to be consistent. And that is as far as horror goes, it checks the boxes. And as I said earlier, I don't know if I saw anything brand new in this, maybe the husband wife team would be the brand new element, Mm -hmm. but the horror tropes are common. They're just very, very highly executed. And so for that, I still love this movie, despite what Mm -hmm. you said and what I agree with some of the other issues that have come up. It's call plus. Mm -hmm. Um, I would give it as it is the first in a franchise. And I sometimes tend to go single barrel with that. It's not that level of monumental. And I think the subsequent entries, each one of them, even the ones I haven't seen lesser than this one, don't speak to this legacy that is, solid one through six Harry Potter, Rocky, whatever you want to say. Mm -hmm. So yeah, call plus that's where I'm going to go with this. What do you got? Mm, I think, I think I'm going to go call plus two because prior to this viewing, I probably would have gone a single barrel, uh, but just some of those things are kind of interesting sticking points for me, but there's a good movie in there. James Wan's an expert director in in suspense and and thrillers and the spooks and scares. You like Vera Farmiga more than me. She works in this in in this film for me mostly. Patrick Wilson's great. Ron Livingston and Lily Taylor are great. All those kids are great. Mm-hmm. Um, everything really really works for me. But you do see that kind of studio influence on a bigger. You know the horde just feels bigger. You know what? Those indie horror films feel more intimate. Because they have less money, everything's right there. They're like it's in your face, and this is kind of lacking a little bit of that soul, maybe the the, the horror soul. Mm-hmm. But there's good stuff here. This the the seedlings of a franchise that could do so many cool things. So I probably would have given it single barrel, but I'll probably give it about a call plus uh, where 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 you're at. If it's not for a title card, is this single barrel for you? Which title card? based on a true story? Oh, probably. Oh, no, I might even go as high as Top Shelf. Yeah. Because to take my brain out of these, they're they're selling me something based on something that they claim actually happened versus this is something that someone made up in their head and it's a spec. It's two totally different things. Yes. Like I mentioned Poltergeist as an example. I'd give Poltergeist a Top Shelf rating. Uh, this film would get that, but I have to suspend my belief that, okay, that girl got drugged across the floor. This doll did this crazy seance uh, through the, mm-hmm. the, the necklace here, and then Lily Taylor spun upside down in this chair. I mean, I believe in an extent of the supernatural. And again, wait for the alien story, but I can't extend it that much. And that's why The Exorcist is so good. I mean, people should really go, if they're going to make a movie like this, really watch that first and see just how simple that movie really is. It's a bedroom for God's sakes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so yes, yeah, uh, uh, call plus, yeah. but uh, there's things in here. I really do like, and it really made me think, man, James Wan is just, 
really at the forefront of an interesting aspect of horror because he helped create the torture porn genre, and I don't know how he feels about that. But I think, Matt, that first Saw film, I think is maybe my favorite film that he's made, actually. Uh, It's just so smartly put together. It's not overly gory yet, not until the sequels. That ending's killer. Uh, And he essentially made a movie in a bathroom. You know what I mean? Yeah. A 90-minute bathroom mm-hmm. movie. <laughs> so <laughs> um, it may, really made me really appreciate his craft, and I can see that he got his opportunities with, like, the Fast and the Furious and Aquaman, and he's obviously doing that, but this is perfect segue into our nightcap. I really wish he'd dip his toe back into the horror genre. So let's get on to this crazy question. so peaceful and then it turned so rotten so quickly but we're out of hell matt we're back we're back here with amongst the living <laughs> take oh. a take a take a breath yeah but we're God. going back in next week so uh. get ready for that my question to you is just like what i alluded to there's a lot of great directors that cut their teeth in horror to start their careers and obviously they go on to other things history of violence or spider-man or big budget filmmaking and good for them i mean (laughs) we'd all want to be there Mm -hmm. but which director that started in horror needs to go back or you want to see go back because you think they either a need it or b you want to see it okay Mm mm-hmm I worry we're going to have the same one here. Well, real quick, because Wes Craven had to come to this realization himself, too. I mean, in the 80s, he the fucking Swamp Thing, Deadly Blessing, and he was like, wow, I, I suck. Nightmare on Elm Street, man, the guy's back. And then he almost pisses it all away again, and then he's like, I got to do it again. Scream. You know what I mean? That was like a, he's had like two resurgences in his career. It's amazing. Yeah. You're worried we're going to have the same one? I am a little bit. That's okay, because I I have a backup, and I might go with that one. Guillermo del Toro. Oh, great choice. So I'm going to go to 97 with Mimic. I wouldn't say that's traditional horror, but um, it is. And his filmography is not just as director. There's some producer stuff that I'm going to take a little bit of liberty with here. Orphan. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Orphanage, yeah. Um, the strain, uh, that's television and not silver screen. So small screen. Well, even his, some of his earlier films, devil's backbone, yeah, devil's and, backbone. Uh, and Kronos. Right. Yeah. So oh, great choice goes from <laughs> that. And then we get into like crimson peak, which was terrible. Oh, yeah. And then we get into Pacific rim. Yeah, and I, I mean, I didn't see The Shape of Water. I know you like that film, but that's well, not, I didn't love it. <laughs> that's not a film I'm probably ever going to do. Yeah. Here's what's coming, though, this year for him. Okay. Pinocchio. Hang on a second. Guillermo del Toro's yes. doing a lot of movies. <laughs> well, in 2021, that's like the next thing that I've seen that he has coming. Okay. As live action. And if it's got his twist in there, because that story. Well, you didn't even mention Pan's Labyrinth. Well, you just told the thunder sorry, from me. Sorry. Okay. I'm so sorry. If that's dark enough as children's fable, then what I was going to say, maybe I'm getting Pan's Labyrinth again. There you go. So you, you're on the same line as me here. That's who I want. Um, Great choice. 
he's a bit frustrating to me too because there's there's some misses in there. He's incredibly frustrating for me because he's amazing with practical makeup. Yeah, he loves that stuff. He was attached, I think, as early as like 2010, and it's never come out. And maybe it's in that list of movies you talked about. He's been attached to a Frankenstein movie mm-hmm. that would mm-hmm. just be killer with him. Yep. Can you imagine? No. Like it'd probably be Doug Jones playing Frankenstein, the guy that's mm-hmm. all the guys, Abe Sapien and the creature in uh and the Labyrinth. Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah. That, that guy. The that feast would, thing. That would be amazing. Like can you imagine that? And maybe a, a more faithful to Shelley's adaptation would probably suit him better. And the funny thing, yes, it would be. When Crimson Peak came out, I was really on board because that looked like traditional haunted house yeah. story. Man, it is anything but. It was all we could do to keep from walking out of that film. So, well, to to <sighs> add to your frustration, you should go and maybe we can do another shot on this uh, at, at some point. But best movies that never got made. Mm-hmm. He was attached for forever to an H.P. Lovecraft uh, uh, novella at the Mountains of Madness, which mm-hmm. is another creatures and horror tale. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it never happened. And I think at one point Tom Cruise was like attached to that thing. Like it could have been like pretty interesting, but it just all just caved in on itself. Interesting. I didn't, I've never heard of that. Mm-hmm. Look, I mean, he's obviously in high demand and people recognize the talent. His problem is terrible selection and property. I'll be real with you. I didn't even consider him. How about that? Ah, great choice. Thanks. All right, let's hear yours. Rock me. You, you can do your honorable mention too. Well, it's David Cronenberg. I mean, yeah, to go from all the greatness we spoke of him, and maybe it's within his son that we're living his new career through, because <laughs> uh, we liked Possessor so mm-hmm. much. I thought about that recently. I was like, we really liked Possessor. I was like, film. that was pretty fun. To go from uh, The Fly, Rabbit, Scanners, Videodrome, Crash, and then go into History of Violence, Eastern Promises, Cosmopolis, I'm like, Cronenberg, go to horror, man. What the hell's Cosmopolis? Uh, it's it's a Robert that. Pattinson future. Oh. Yeah, it's yeah, exactly. No, I want him with body horror, and I know he. That's you don't want to make every movie body horror, but like he's had enough dip of of a toe into cerebral Oscar bait. Do go do a body horror film for all of us. And the rumor is that he is in development with something like that. Well, let's go ahead and shoot the works on this, and let's have Del Toro produce the Frankenstein film, and mm. he can direct oh, it. That'd be good. Because isn't that body horror? That'd be wild. Maybe David Lynch can just be on set to just ebb his weirdness. Write the script? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, can you imagine? Yeah, that'd be so That'd be a weird. wild movie. Um, yeah. My winner, and I think we're going to get a piece of this, actually, but not full-fledged, but I want to see him go full-fledged. It's got to be Sam Raimi. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mm-hmm. I love the Evil Dead films, and I love Drag Me to Hell. Uh, I like Darkman, and I like the Spider-Man films, and you can see that influence in those, and you see the horror, Simple Plan, all the, all the great, interesting movies he's made. Uh, I want to see him get back to that because he's so good at it, and he likes doing it, and he has fun with it. But Doctor Strange in the... I almost said in the mountains of madness in the multiverse of madness, mm-hmm. I think presents an interesting opportunity to delve into the horror aspects of the Marvel universe. If it's true and nightmare is a player, then that introduces Mephisto. And now we are playing with the space that would seem to be the reason they chose him for that film. He seems perfect for it. 
my fingers are crossed and double crossed for that. Because they lost Scott Derrickson, and that was the guy that did Emily Rose and Deliver Us from Evil, whore guy, mm-hmm. to find another whore guy. But he, he's the whore guy that made one of my favorite horror trilogies of all time, and three and two of my favorite Spider-Man movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I almost said three, but that's a conversation for another day. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to get it, but not quite to the extent that I want it. After that film, I, I kind of wish he would do like another film like Drag Me to Hell. That that was such a fun movie that is Evil Dead, but it's not Evil Dead. Isn't there some discussion for a picking up where Army of Dead left off or um, Army of Darkness? And th- yeah. I think the new one is called Army of Dead. Oh, that, that oh no, that's Zack Snyder <laughs> on Netflix. No, I thought I saw something with Raimi attached to something in that. Well, you know, franchise. I, if it was, I would sign up. You, yeah, you'd probably know. Maybe I'm wrong. You know what seems like a miss for me was that they never kind of followed up that Evil Dead remake with anything because I thought that was a winner too. I never looked at the numbers on that, but I know you and I were bugged when we saw that film. We had a great time. It yeah, was, it was great. So gruesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was. It can't be Carpenter. He's kind of done. You know what I mean? I tried to think of a guy that's still in play, uh, that's still alive. Don't so. you think Car... Okay, let's do this because this pisses me off. Okay. For everything that I said is frustrating about Guillermo del Toro, mm-hmm. John Carpenter is also that, but add another 15 years to the career. And not because it's bad choices. Mm-hmm. That poor bastard is stuck with bad luck. Look, Mission to Mars is terrible. And there's a couple stinkers in there. Mm-hmm. If the fog is done today, like, no, if the fog is done four years ago with a big budget and a name, not Adrian Barbo, but a name, it kills. Yeah. We don't like zombies. Mm -hmm. We don't like seafaring zombies. Yes, we do. Yeah. If The Rock does big trouble in Little China in whatever version that has been now discussed for a couple of years, and like you said, he's got 50 projects going. The Rock's the actor version of Del Toro. (laughs) I want him to jump in one more time for something more than a score or a token note that he gives on a script that he reads. I want him to go one more, like I can also man up one more time and do it, man. I can see where you 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 can say that, and I, I if he makes a film, I'm there at midnight. How old is he now, Jesse? God, he's like 77, 76. But oh. part of me's like, I think he's done, and I think he's comfortable being done. And maybe this whole, you mentioned score in this music space. That's at least enough for me to like, at least hear those shreds of the past. Cause it couldn't, it couldn't, it could come out and do okay. But I don't know if it could ever be as good as these movies. You know what I mean? I do. So it's almost like he's, it's to get at a place where you're just done. I mean, that sounds nice. <laughs> when he was the executive producer on Tales from the Crypt. Did you know that he did that with the I, Crypt Keeper and all that? I didn't, I didn't. Do you know about that series? I remember body bags that he did. So Tales from the Crypt was like an HBO series with the Crypt Keeper who was a puppet, and it was mm-hmm. some horror. It was like kind of Twilight Zone, yeah, but yeah. a little bit more scary. I know he had a hand in some spaces on that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he ever actually jumped in and did one, though. Uh, maybe he did because body bags is actually an anthology horror, like creep show, where they did three, mm-hmm. and he he he's he did one of them, and he's actually in it as an actor. I know what you mean. I mean, he's 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 my bread and butter, but, you know, obviously I'd pick, like, Wes Craven would be in the fold, even, like, maybe Toby Hooper, but those guys have passed, but, yeah, I want Sam Raimi. I mean, I want some, I just want some, like, cameras on some two-by-fours running through something 
And I just want that visual again. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Spider-Man even had that. And that's a superhero movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so one of these days we'll do Spider-Man 2. And that's going to be an amazing episode. The Amazing Spider-Man. <laughs> so yeah, that would be a good episode. That'll be great. But this is a wrap on the first film in the Conjuring series. Uh, we're going to be spending a couple weeks with this and lead up to part three. The Devil Made Me Do It. It's kind of a terrible title, too. Like, well, I hope it's good. I mean, Juan's not. I don't think he's barely involved, maybe as a producer. It's Law Yorona guy, isn't it? Who is it? I mean, it might be. It might be, actually. Yeah. Well, they're keeping it in the family. But next week, we're actually going to go to a film that you haven't seen yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're going to dip our toe into the Annabelle franchise, but I think we're picking the right one to do it. We're going to go with Annabelle creation. So this is the prequel to the Annabelle film and any involvement in the Warren's treasure chest, but we get to finally see what made this thing go bad. And I'm curious to see what you think of this because I remember, and I've only seen it once. So this might be a horrible recommendation, but I remember really liking it. And cause it was so different from the first one. It was kind of scary. Uh, and it, it made the doll not ridiculous. Ed and Lorraine in this one? Mm-hmm. Is this one they're in? Which is the one that they're in? The third one. Yeah. What's that one called again? Comes Home. Annabelle Comes yeah, Home. Yeah, that was pretty forgettable. Okay. Yeah. So buckle up. We're d- dipping our toe into the Annabelle pool, and then we'll continue on with the conjuring versus the, the nunjuring, as my friend Jonathan would say. <laughs> Four-week cast. This is a big one. This is a big one, but we've wanted to do it for a long time. That's and right. Everyone, a lot of people like when we tackle the horror films. I like when we tackle the horror Yes. <laughs> you like when we tackle the horror films. So. And also a return to some contemporary stuff because it's starting to happen again. So I think it's well-timed. We've had a little bit of that lately, so more to that. So cheers. 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 Hit us up on Facebook or, or Instagram. Any of our questions, we're posting photos and things all the time. Uh, tpublic.com. Get yourself some merch. We'll have some sweet Conjuring merch this week. And uh, patreon.com slash Films. The Patreon stuff is wild or just like it's just so different than what we're doing here you know what i mean Mm -hmm. we got a film we got you know everything feels very coordinated and not that that's not coordinated it's all really well put together but like the watch along is just so different than what we regularly do you know what i mean okay can i just make a like very shocking admission to you yeah i'm pretty comfortable when we do this Mm -hmm. i feel like i prep but if i didn't i feel like i could make it through if i'd seen the film enough times when we go in to do the watch along, it is raw, and there is times where I'm just, I, I'm awestruck with where we go, and it's really uncomfortable. So you get a different version of both of us on that, mm-hmm. and then add a little bit of uh, spirits in there, and some tangential stories like your alien story that I can't wait to hear now. I know it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I'll tell you after this, but the okay. audience has to wait until an appropriate episode. Sounds good. Uh, no, when we. On Deep Blue Sea, when we talked about sneaking into movies, and like, oh my God, I had, that was just like, it just took me back. It was a time machine that took me back to a time that I wish I could go back to sometimes. Uh, to that. To just like the effort it would take to sneak into R rated movies. <laughs> <laughs> but until then, cheers, Matt. I got to get going. I'm going to go look in my treasure trove of Funko Pop trinquants, and I hope none of them have any effect like the clapping monkey or the Annabelle ball. We don't need to worry, though, because you have that nice glass door in front of it to keep everything in there nice and safe because that glass is super sturdy. (laughs) That glass will keep us safe. Yeah. Excellent. We'll see you all next week. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. 
For more Rye Smile content, go to patreon.com slash Films for exclusive bonus episodes, plus feature-length watch-along commentaries on your favorite movies, and TV show recap episodes covering the best from the small screen. For Rye Smile Films merchandise, go to tpublic.com. The Conjuring is property of Warner Brothers Pictures, New Line Cinema, The Saffron Company, and Evergreen Media Group, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.